Well, we've reached the final chapter, not the final sermon, but at least the final chapter in Paul's first letter to his disciple, Timothy, the young pastor who, if you'll recall, at this point in time is trying to lead and shepherd a church in the very immoral first century culture of a large Roman city called Ephesus, a city full of the worship of idols and demons, rampant with sexual perversion and immorality, a culture that was very hostile to the gospel. So for five chapters now, Paul has instructed Timothy, and we've been part of that instruction, on how to teach the people of his congregation how to live. Several times he's warned Timothy about what he called false teachers and the heretics that are in the Ephesian church being used by the enemy of God, Satan and his allies, and they're very real and they're still active and alive, to try to lead people astray. So now he's beginning kind of his wrap-up. He's going to begin the close of this first letter to Timothy with another warning about those same false teachers. This time referring to them basically, he doesn't use this phrase, but this is what he means, it's clear, as religious charlatans. Apparently, they were doing something that in the first century, at least, was very common. They were trying to get paid and succeeding by peddling lies to people, which then leads Paul to a discussion, not about the false teachers, about three concepts that apply not just to the false teachers in the Ephesian church and not just to the Ephesian church, concepts that affect all of us today in the 21st century. These things that he talks about with the primary focus of my teaching this morning, those concepts I'm going to introduce right now, even before we get to the text. The first concept is the unhealthy love and pursuit of wealth, money, and possessions. He's not talking about wealth, money, and possessions as if they're inherently evil. Let's make that very clear from the start. But he's talking about an unhealthy obsession and love and pursuit of those things. Secondly, Paul will also talk about the very elusive concept, big word, of contentment. Contentment which can be, but it's not always, but can be connected to our perspective on wealth, money, and possessions. Thirdly, Paul will also reference harmful desires in general, not just the love of money, that can plunge people, he says, into ruin and destruction. There were a lot of those around in the first century. There's a lot of those around today. So let's define these three concepts and spend some time, even again, before we get to the text. First of all, wealth, money, and possessions. That doesn't really need to be defined much for any of us. We all know what those are, and we're going to see next week when Lee teaches that there were wealthy people in the church at Ephesus, and Paul does not tell them to sell everything and give it to the poor. He just asked Timothy to tell them to be generous and steward their wealth in a way that focuses on eternal things, God and people. Not, as Rick Warren would say, just the dot on the line that stretches throughout all eternity for all of us, this little 70 or 80 years we get on this spinning globe, to invest their wealth in things that are going to last, their relationship with God and their relationship with people. Second concept, 
kind of the theme of the talk this morning. Everything I'm going to talk about, I'm going to try to relate to this word. because This is a really big word. It's the word contentment. It's a much more difficult concept for me to get my mind around than wealth, money, and possessions. The Greek word for contentment is autarkia. The primary meaning has to do with, this was kind of a surprise to me, sufficiency. The first century Greeks, not the Christians, used the word to mean self-sufficient, not dependent on other people for your living, for the things you needed in life. Paul and the first century Christians used the term to mean Christ-sufficient, meaning that we should be looking to Christ in faith to meet our needs, our physical needs, while working hard to support ourselves, our families, and to give to those around us that are in need. Another closely related Greek word used for contentment by the early Christian writers in the New Testament is a word, archaeo. I love this definition. It means to possess a strength that does not fail. Wow, that's a good one. Each of you, if you really know Jesus Christ, if you have the spirit of the living God inside of you, possesses a strength that does not fail this morning. It also means sufficient, enough, satisfied is wrapped up in the meaning of the word contentment. The third concept is desire or desires in general. In today's passage of scripture, the reference is to harmful desires or lust related to our fallen sin nature. And thus, don't forget, we have a fallen sin nature. We were born with it. But I think we can agree that not all of our desires are sinful. And that sometimes, though, it's hard to sift our desires. I never thought about that this a lot until this week, sifting my desires. Actually, Charity Stillings, one of our staff members, brought up a, a great devotion I took a look at, the concept of sifting our desires and our motives and trying to sort out what's bad and what's good. Sometimes that's just a matter of degree. Let me give you a silly, simple little example. If I'm hungry, I hadn't gotten that way yet. My bowl of cereal is holding for a while. I'll start getting hungry probably in about 30 minutes. I do have a high metabolism, even at 70. But if I'm hungry because I've been working outside doing physical labor, a friend of mine that works here in the church was here this morning at 6.30. David was over raking leaves outside yesterday morning at our house at about 10 o'clock. It was really cold. I'm sure he got really hungry. It's just a few hours. But that desire for food one, for example, doing physical labor for several hours, that's a legitimate God-given desire to want to eat, to replenish and nourish my body. So, and it's okay to enjoy the good food that God provides while you're eating. But <laughs> I, me, like I'm sure some of you, have a tendency to not temper that desire at some point in the meal. I need to stop eating. I have a tendency to gorge or to overeat sometimes. So what's a definition of desire anyway? To wish or long for or to crave something. Fairly simple. Sometimes the right thing to do is to simply exercise self-discipline and temper or suppress our desires, like this example I just gave you. But there are boundaries even to our legitimate desires, as I pointed out. 
We need to take our desires to God when we're not sure and ask for his help in sorting them out. Clearly, again, there are desires that are working inside of Jim against the Holy Spirit that is also working inside of Jim. Desires rooted in self-ambition, selfish ambition, pride, lust, fear, etc. And sometimes even legitimate desires can be mixed with some of these bad motives. It is better to take again our desires to Jesus, lay them out for him, ask him what is good and bad. I don't know if I'd ever done that really overtly. I guess I do it on occasions at times, but I've thought more about this week. I recommend that to you. And ask him what he wants you to pursue. And, and then ask him to expose or to kill or temper desires that are not legitimate. Maybe he simply doesn't want you to pursue something right now that might be legitimate or might be okay for someone else. We can ask him to help us with all that. At the same time, empower us and give us feet and wings to those desires that he wants us to pursue and that he wants to help fulfill inside of you. All of this discussion, again, relates back to the centerpiece word for this morning's talk, the elusive concept of contentment. Again, which is much bigger than just not loving money. I want to take a biblical example of a person for a minute to kind of maybe shift your thinking just a little bit about this concept of contentment. I want to take Paul as an example. To say that Paul was an icon of what I think thought was contentment would not be true. <laughs> That's not my picture of Paul. You think he was satisfied with how far the gospel had advanced at any point in his lifetime? No. It wouldn't even be truthful if that's your definition of contentment to just be laid back and satisfied with all this going on around you. To say that Paul was content wouldn't be true. It wouldn't be true to the own picture the picture Paul paints of himself in the New Testament by his own writings. To say that Paul was not driven, that would be a silly statement. Not ambitious, did not work night and day at times, did not have goals or desires, would simply be a lie. <clears throat> so the concept of contentment must be bigger than just saying, chill out, Paul. God will take care of everything. I know that there's times in my life, my wife can testify, that someone needs to say exactly that to me. And, and probably some of you are like that. But I have a couple of questions for you to consider, even as we start. And they're difficult questions in light of this concept of contentment. Let's use modern day psychological garbledy goop. Can a tripe driven type A Here's one for most of you. Enneagram 8, person like Paul or like me, really teach and embrace the concept of contentment? Just a question. Harder question, theologically. Can a Christian work hard in the 21st century to build a business and make lots of money and still be content? Biblically, the answer to both of those questions is yes. Now, more on that a little later in the talk. 
And Lee will especially address that last question next week. Two verses before we start that can help us with these concepts. First one I want you to think about is Genesis 1, 28. Let's go way back there to the beginning. God is speaking to two human beings, male and female. And he says this, we describe it as the cultural mandate or God's first mandate to his human creation. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it or rule or reign over it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. Sounds like God expects something from those first two humans and us to achieve and be productive, not just to hang out, so to speak, in the garden all the time. Ephesians 2.10. And, and by the way, there's a lot of passages like these. I've just picked out a couple, one from the New Testament. This one's a little more subtle, but think about what it's Paul saying to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 2.10, for we, fill your, put your name, Jim, you're God's handiwork. That phrase, think about that phrase. That phrase means that God's at work. And he has been and he still is all around us. You're God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? To do good works, <laughs> which God has pre prepared in advance, Jim, for you to do. Sounds like a call to do good works. So right now, I'm going to take this a step further. Let's do a deeper dive into Paul before we get to our primary text. I promise I'll get to the text here in just a few minutes. But let's look at a few more verses about Paul. Again, we're trying to get our mind around what biblical contentment means. So here's Paul first, Romans 15, 20. Paul speaking about himself. It's always been my ambition. Ambition is not a negative word. It's selfish ambition that's a negative word. To preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Paul has ambitions. 1 Thessalonians 2.9, writing to a church that had a tendency to be spiritual busybodies, be lazy and not produce income for their families and to give to those in need. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day. <laughs> that means more than eight hours a day. In order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel to you. Philippians 3, 12 and 14. Look at some of these words in this passage of Scripture. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. Paul has goals. But I press on. <laughs> That's an indication of hard work, drivenness to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind me, forgetting the successes even, the failures, he's trying to block all that out and focus on the goal and straining toward what's ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. As Lee likes to say, we have all of eternity to celebrate our successes. Paul knows he's only got a few years to live it out to achieve something for Jesus. 
Philippians 4. It doesn't sound like a sermon on contentment, does it? Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Paul kind of brings it back around to contentment again in another passage. And he's talking about sufficiency. And he's talking about physical needs again and material possessions. And he says this, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. In the midst of these goals, in the midst of this working day and night, in the midst of being shipwrecked, in the midst of being beaten half to death, in the midst of being persecuted and in prison, Paul says, I'm content. And sometimes when I'm on top of the world and everything's going great, I've learned to be content. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in want, in plenty or want. I'm going to pause right now. And uh, if you're a, a poet, I'm going to appeal to you this morning. Rudyard Kipling, in his famous poem, I have it taped up behind my desk. I'll look at it multiple times a week, if would say that Paul is meeting with triumph and disaster as we all do in life and treating those two imposters just the same. Paul goes on to say, I can do all this to him who gives me strength. Back to the Christian first century definition of contentment, Christ's sufficiency. In this last verse, that's Paul's secret sauce, so to speak. His secret to contentment is a mental backdrop that Paul rests in Jesus. His eternity is secure, that he has the Holy Spirit of the living God inside of him. He is Christ sufficient. He hangs all of his life's experiences, good or bad, on the framework of faith in God's sufficiency to meet his needs. He says in another passage, to live to die is to be with Christ in his gain. That's what creates his emotional, spiritual, and mental peace. So with that big backdrop in mind now, let's finally get to the, my text for this morning. 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 11. I'm going to start in 2. It's not on the screen, the last sentence of 2. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. What he's talking about is everything he's taught in the first five chapters. Teach those things. Basically, it's just a Christian ethos. It's a Christian ethic. How to do life. How to do church life together. And then he says in verse 3, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound and destruction of our Lord Jesus Christ, things like, the virgin birth, if they're not teaching the virgin birth, Jim, that's a historical fact. If they're not teaching that Jesus Christ is God incarnate and came in the flesh, that's all over the New Testament. If they're not teaching he really died on a real Roman cross, it's not some cosmic metaphor allegory. If they're teaching that kind of stuff, they're liars. They're false teachers. If they're not teaching a real resurrection, if they're not teaching those things, if they're teaching other things other than that, it's not true. That's not sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ of God to teach. Verse four, they're conceited, literal translation, they're puffed up. They think they're more important than they are. And they understand nothing. In other words, they wouldn't know the truth if it hit them in the face. They lack spiritual understanding. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies. They're trying to stir up debate and arguments about things that are difficult to understand, about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion, constant friction between people of corrupt minds 
who have been robbed of the truth, who robbed them of the truth, our enemy and God's enemy, the liar and his demons have robbed them of the truth. If you keep resisting the truth over and over and over and over, the Bible said you'll eventually be given over to a depraved mind and you'll be completely deceived and deluded. And that's their condition. And you think that godliness or the preaching of religion is a means to financial gain. That's the religious charlatan thing that I referred to earlier. And then he shifts gears. It's like you're thinking, oh, oh yeah, talking about gain or financial gain, let me talk to you, Timothy, about that. I want to give you some personal advice. And it's advice for the church as well. And it's advice for New Heights Church as well in the 21st century. It starts in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to know what great gain is, Jim? Not to make a bazillion dollars. There may not be anything wrong with that if you use it wisely. If you cannot be poisoned by it, it's hard, though, not to be poisoned by it. If you'll just pursue things that matter, and if you'll live a life that's upstanding, if you've got good values and a good reputation, and you're content whether you're rich or poor, that's what great gain is. And then the trailer hitch on the hearse verse, my, one of my favorite verses. I love this one. For we brought nothing into this world, and we ain't taking nothing out. Not stuff, anyway. That's what he's talking about, stuff. Money, possessions, wealth. But if we have food and clothing, let's be content with that. The commentators say it's bigger than that. He's talking about shelter as well. Just the basic stuff we need in life. Verse 9, those who want to get rich, who have an unhealthy obsession with being rich, fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires. Now he's talking about other desires, not just the desire for the love of money, unhealthy desires that I talked about earlier that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Getting wealthy can take you to places you really don't want to go, is what he's saying. There's a danger in it because now you have the ability to sin and sin big and pay for it and get away with it. That's a loose paraphrase, okay? For the love of money, not money, the obsession, the unhealthy obsession with wealth, money, and possessions is a root of all kinds of evil. Motivation again, desire. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. He's almost saying that you, you can hear the grief in his voice, his words here, and pierce themselves with many griefs. Another word that's commonly used for this unhealthy obsession with stuff and money and wealth is greed. Greed. He's preaching against greed. Some other verses that warn about money and the danger of money and wealth from the Bible. There's lots, by the way. Here's three from other writers. I picked out one from the writer of Hebrews. May have been Paul, may not have been, but the writer of Hebrews, want to know who it was. One from a very, very wealthy, significant sinner in the Old Testament by the name of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. And then a quote by Jesus himself. So three more people to weigh in like Paul is on the danger of the love of money and money in general. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your lives free 
from the love of money or from greed and be content. He's talking about content with what you have. Rest in and have faith in God's provision for you is another way of saying it. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's again a promise of the sufficiency of God in Christ to meet your physical needs. It's a promise of his help. I won't say who this is, but I talked to someone that I've been praying hard for months for their provision, their financial provision, just out of the foyer a few minutes ago. And I was tickled that, that something had happened, a closing had happened, and God had come through and provided for them again. He's done that for me throughout my life. I'm sure he's done it for many of you. And they had gotten down to the last $700 in their bank account when God came through his family. But that story could be retold by all of us probably, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us, over and over again. Stories from our life like that. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 11. Solomon speaking from experience. Whoever loves money never has enough of it. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner ultimately except to feast their eyes on them? In other words, Solomon's saying, they are not eternal. They're just part of that little dot on that line that stretches throughout all eternity. Luke 12, 15, Jesus himself speaking and warning. He said to them, put your name in. He said to me, watch out, Jim. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So what does all this mean? Does the Bible be, teach that being poor is a virtue and being wealthy is sin? Clearly not. Productivity, I tried to make the case earlier. Give you a few more verses in just a minute to look at. I'm not going to read them. Productivity and hard work are commanded and modeled in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there are wealthy people that are characterized as godly in Scripture. Abraham, Joseph, Job, the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the wealthy women in Luke 8. I routinely give those as examples. They're just some of the examples. Even the wealthy crook, Zacchaeus. Have you thought about this? Earlier, Jesus runs into a rich guy, has a conversation with him. The guy's sincere. He wants to follow Jesus, be one of his disciples, follow him around for, I don't know how much time's left in ministry, another year or two till Jesus gets crucified. And he says, a really hard thing to him. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. That's a scary thought, by the way. But you know what? He runs into another wealthy guy. And the first wealthy guy, there's no indication he was a crook. But apparently Jesus could read his mail and knew he was obsessed with making money. And he runs into this little bitty short guy. You all know the story from Bible school. Zacchaeus, vacation Bible school in the tree, the wee little man, all that song. I can't, I know where I'm not going to sing. And, uh, you know, that he's not just a wee little man. He's a very wealthy crook. And what does Jesus say to him? He really doesn't have to say anything. 
Zacchaeus starts repenting, confessing, promising restitution. Jesus does not tell this wealthy crook to go sell it all and give it to the poor. That's an interesting note. I've get, I note that if I'm being intellectually honest. If you want more verses on the value of work and productivity and earning money, here's a few passages. Proverbs 28, 23 through 27 on productivity and work. Ecclesiastes eleven six, Ephesians 4, 28. But those are just little bitty samples. Another concept. The concept is not mentioned specifically in this passage of Scripture, but it is in a lot of other passages of Scripture. And it's very, very important to curing greed and to curing this concept of being poisoned by money. The biggest antidote, according to Scripture, to being poisoned by money and possessions is the dozens of biblical commands. Oh my goodness, there's more of those in the Bible than there is about wealth. Be generous and give sacrificially. That's the biggest antidote to it. That's also part of the secret of contentment. I've never met a generous person that was generally an unhappy person. I'm not just talking about Christians and Jews. I'm talking about agnostics and atheists. I've got plenty of friends that don't confess Christ that I hang out with. And, and, and I know some of them, not all of them, but some of them I've run into throughout my 70 years on the planet that are pretty happy because the Bible says they'll be happy if they're more generous. Part of being content is being generous. It's part of the secret of contentment. One verse among many on that passage is 2 Corinthians 9, 8. After telling the Corinthians to give generously, again, an antidote for greed, and as a demonstration of the grace that they've experienced and the grace he asked them to give, and as a demonstration of faith, the Greek word for contentment pops up, autarkia, in the passage of Scripture. This time it's translated, having all you need or sufficiency, literally. A contentment, again, that arises from faith in God to provide while working hard to do your part. There's a lot packed into this one little sentence in this verse. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to bless you. He's talking about physical blessings, material blessings, money blessings, stuff blessings, to bless you abundantly so that in all things and in all times, having all that you need, there's the contentment word, you will abound in every good work. So in this one verse, Paul is commending faith, our trust in God, hard work, and generosity. Another concept that's not mentioned in the passage that I need to comment on, it's incredibly important, and I did a deep dive on this. I don't remember. Sometime this year, I taught on this here, in the passage of Scripture, and I think in Matthew or somewhere, we talked about fear, worry, and anxiety, and we've talked about that a lot in times past. But that certainly had something to do with contentment or the lack of contentment. So I'm going to comment on it. It's not mentioned in this passage, but it's wrapped up in this concept of contentment, which is, I believe, the theme of this passage. It's mentioned lots of places in the Old Testament. And the formula in all the places it's mentioned is pretty much the same. 
It's almost always the same. I'm going to read some of those passages. You'll get the pattern pretty quick. Fear, worry, and anxiety clearly are the enemies of contentment as well. Again, the Bible writers tell us that to defeat fear, worry, and anxiety, we need to focus on God. 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxiety on him, on God, because he cares for you. That's an incredibly comforting thought. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. The Lord is near. He's near to you, Jim. He's near to all of you if you really know him. Don't be anxious about everything. I tend to get anxious about silly stuff, about elections. Is that striking home? About politics, about political divisiveness, about the demise of morality in America. More on that in a minute. Jesus is commenting on worry and sufficiency too. Let me finish the Philippians passage. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, remember the good things that a good God has done for you in the past. I hope you got a history with God. I do. I keep a list when I get down, and I have to read it a lot. Memorials or markers, the good things that God's done for me in the past, and then present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, that Mental contentment will settle on you and it'll guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Matthew 6, 25 and 34, Jesus. He's commenting on worry. He's commenting on sufficiency. He's commenting on contentment. And he's commenting on provision of material needs. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? You know, he's not saying the birds don't work. The birds do work hard, but God provides. So he's not telling us not to work. Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothing? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. I tell you, not Solomon, who I quoted earlier, and all his splendor was dressed like one of those. If that is how God, the ultimate creator, the ultimate provider, the most powerful being in the universe, clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the non-Christians, the pagans, the ones that are not chasing God, run after these things. They chase these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first in his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek God and try to live out his value system and his ethos. And all these things will be given to you as well. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble with its own. Wow, how do I wrap all this up? I struggled thinking about this week, and a guy's name kept coming to my mind. And I can be spiritually dense at times, and God has to keep saying something over and over, but he kept bringing up to me John Wesley. So I did another deep dive. I've done a lot of deep dives on John Wesley in the past, and I learned out he had some flaws. It made me feel better about myself. 
And, uh, and, and I won't go into his flaws right now because I won't talk about his strengths. If you don't know who John Wesley was, uh, he was an English evangelist and missionary to America, several trips. He was a huge part of what's been called the first great awakening, which is, by the way, one of many revivals in American history that has turned America around and saved us from a total moral meltdown. America has a unique revival history. If you haven't ever studied it, it's incredibly unique. And boy, do we need another great awakening right now. We do. I hope you're praying for it. I know it's cliche for Christians to say that. I don't really care. It's a fact. It's a fact. We need another great awakening right now. We're in trouble. Okay, enough on that. That was, that was free. Uh, I'm praying for one, and I hope you are as well. John Wesley was born in 1703. I'd never caught this before. He died in 1791, so he lived the entire span of the 18th century. He had tens of thousands of followers, not on social media, real followers, and he earned a whole lot of money during his lifetime from his preaching, from his writings, from all kinds of things. The guy made a lot of money. However, he lived a very modest lifestyle, but he was not anti-wealth or anti-money. In fact, he countered that theology of that day that money was bad. And if, but after providing for himself and his family, he gave away most of what he earned. He believed that money was a gift from God to be used for good. Here's John Wesley's theology of money. I recommend it to you. I know there's nuance in this. Number one, Make all you can by hard work and honest labor. That's number one. That's refreshing. Number two, save what you need. Some of us struggle with that one. Number three, give away all you can for God's work and to help people in need around you. That's a great theology of work, wealth, and giving. Wesley had a reputation for not increasing his standard of living as his income increased. Most of us don't do that. Most of us increase our standing of living as our income increases. He believed that living modestly and giving away most of his income, not in poverty, was what Jesus taught and expected of him. In the middle and later years of his life, he gave away 90 to 90%, 90 to 95%, excuse me, of his income each year. His goal was to die with as little money as possible, having given it all away, which he did. In fairness, it should be noted that Wesley did not have a spouse, children, or grandchildren to leave anything to upon his death. I'm going to leave you with some thought questions. First question, how content are you? Do you struggle with that? I do at times. How content are you? Number two, how obsessed are you with making or investing money? What would Jesus say to you about that? What are you doing with your money? That's probably the biggest question for most of us. What are you doing with your money? And lastly, is Christ the source of your sufficiency for life? Do you have a faith in Christ to provide, not just financially, but for 
all the things that you need in life is Christ, the framework of your sufficiency. I'm going to pray for us. And you've been, you know, enough time today to minister to one another. We're moving into our last worship set and our ministry time. And I want to encourage you. It's been tough for us to restart this tradition at New Heights. We don't have a lot of traditions, but this is one that we kind of pride ourselves in, is ministering to one another body. So I want to encourage you to pray this morning, to take communion together during this last worship. There's plenty of time now to do that. And think about going and ministering to someone else, maybe a total stranger the Holy Spirit prompts you to pray for. Uh, or if you want prayer, I'm going to call up the prayer team. If you're on the prayer team, if you start to come on up right now, even during this next song, if you want to be prayed for by a member of the prayer team, have courage. Come up and be prayed for by your brothers and sisters. Let me pray for us, and we'll start to close. Father God, thank you for your great teachings from Scripture that we get to participate in this morning on contentment, money, possessions, eternity, sufficiency, desires. Lord, sort this out for each one of us. Help us not to look around and be judgmental of anyone else for any reason, but to be introspective and listen to your spirit. Not judge another man's servants, but ask you what it is you want us to do with the good things that you're providing for us. Teach us about contentment in Jesus' name. Amen.